Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see so many of you here. My name is Doug Fullington. Welcome to our performance of Midsummer Night's Dream. This is our closing performance of an eight-show run, uh, fifth performance of our uh, performance program of our 50th anniversary season. I think a Midsummer Night's Dream is a great programming choice for this anniversary season. It's a ballet we've had in our repertory for many years, and it has a lot of history wrapped up in it, both here at home and, and on the road. We've taken this ballet uh, around the world, literally. So we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, a little bit about the history of the ballet, how Balanchine put it together, uh, what we've done with it here. But I also welcome your questions anytime. Happy to discuss what interests you. And I'll certainly leave about half of our time for questions. So if, if, uh, if you have anything, uh, we'll, we'll discuss that. But I guess first, uh, I want to ask how many of you have seen A Midsummer Night's Dream, the ballet? Okay, so maybe half. Great. Uh, excellent starting point is that it's based on Shakespeare's play. So if you've read that, you're good. It's complicated, though. It's a very much uh, mismatched lover's sort of affair. But we also have a... Um, we've got the fairy kingdom, we've got the mortal kingdom, and things get a little bit mixed up. Uh, when the ballet begins, we meet the, the fairy kingdom of, with Oberon, king of the fairies, and Titania, queen of the fairies. They're fighting, oddly, over a little page who is part of Titania's court. Well, Oberon wants that page for his court. Ask Titania. She says no. I think she'd just say no anyway. <laughs> I think that's how it goes between them. So he's going to not only get his sidekick Puck to essentially kidnap this page, but he's going to play a trick on Titania uh, via a magic flower. Now, this magic flower, if you sprinkle it on someone, they will fall asleep, and then when they wake up, the first person or thing that they see, they'll fall in love with. So um, they put Titania to sleep, and then they find a, a sort of uh, unknowing, unwitting mortal named Bottom the Weaver, and turn him into a donkey, and then they place him at Titania's feet, and of course when she wakes up, she falls in love with Bottom the Donkey, but it's, it's one of the best parts of the ballet. So, but along the way, Puck uh, gets a little uh, free with the magic flower and involves some of these mortals. So we have a, a few pairs. We have Helena and Demetrius. We have Hermia and Lysander, but of course they, that gets all mixed up. And uh, they're all wearing red and blue, too, on stage. So, but uh, one pair, the pairs that should be together are more blue, and the other two that should be together are more red. So that's a code for us. In the, uh, in the audience. Um, that finally gets sorted out, as these things do, and in the second part of the ballet, we have a, a wonderful wedding, not just for those two uh, couples, but for a third. It's a triple wedding uh, involving Helena and Demetrius, Hermia and Lysander, and uh, Theseus, Duke of Athens, who is marrying Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, who we've met in the first act with her six hounds that uh, go around with her. So big cast here, big cast, and we'll talk a little bit about that more. So the, this, the ballet version, there's been, there are other versions of the ballet than George Balanchine's, but we do the Balanchine. Uh, he put it together in 1962 for the New York City Ballet, and it was his first original uh, full-length ballet. Balanchine had staged what we think of as the classics or, or helped with them. 
He learned them growing up in St. Petersburg. He uh, was staging them for the Ballet Russe in the 1920s. Uh, and some of that also once he came to the States in the 1930s. But with Midsummer, he uh, put this together himself, and he had a great starting point, of course, with Shakespeare's play and Felix Mendelssohn's music for Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a kind of music that we call incidental music, which doesn't sound like a very complimentary title, oh, incidental music, but that's not what it means. Uh, it means it's music that's written to uh, accompany a, perf a performance of the play, A Midsummer Night's Dream. So incidental music generally often includes an overture that's played before the play, and then the other places that you can slot music in, between the acts, or uh, setting lyrics that the play might, playwright might write. Uh, and we have that in the case of uh, Midsummer. Shakespeare wrote words to songs, and uh, Mendelssohn set them to music, and you'll hear them sung uh, today during the performance. We've got not only our orchestra, but we've got singers to boot, and so you'll hear Shakespeare's words sung at different points during the ballet. Balanchine put the ballet together in two acts. The first act is long, so be ready. It's about 70 minutes. So when you go to sit down, it's going to be 70. Uh, and he gets through the whole story, though. It's not slow moving. Okay, a lot, lot of action. We move from one thing to the next. But he gets us through the whole story in that first act. Then we have our one intermission. Then we come back for the second act. It's shorter. It's about 35 minutes. And that's the wedding. Begins with Mendelssohn's famous wedding march. And if you are not sure what it is, give it two seconds. And you will know, oh, that one. And I think it's great. We get to hear it in its original form, how Mendelssohn wrote it for the orchestra. And we get to see it danced as well. So I think that's a treat. In the middle of the wedding uh, festivities, Balanchine has uh, choreographed an entertainment. In ballet, we call that a, a divertissement or divertissement, uh, a diversion, an entertainment for uh, six couples in an ensemble and then a lead couple that dances one of the most beautiful duets, I think, that Balanchine choreographed. These characters don't have names. They are, I think, they're an idealization of, of perhaps love and dance as well. And uh, they, they sort of appear from nowhere in the wedding, and then they sort of seamlessly uh, fade away as the, as the courtiers uh, come back into the mix toward the end of the ballet. And then finally, we're, uh, we, we have one more encounter with the fairy kingdom at the very end of the ballet as Balanchine brings everything full circle. We have had a Midsummer Night's Dream in our repertory at PMB since 1985, so coming up on 40 years. And since we're only 50 years old, that's most of our time. So most of uh, the dancers that have come through the company have performed this ballet. If you look at the casting insert, you'll see that there are 14 roles listed as leading roles up above the really large ensemble, uh, which means there's just a lot for the company to do. And at any given performance, you're really seeing almost the entire company. And I think next to Nutcracker, it's the ballet that we can watch company members move through roles as they move through their career and see them take on roles of more uh, technical requirement or greater sort of stage presence or uh, greater amount of time carrying the story. And it's exciting to do that. It comes back in the repertory about every four years. 
and uh, it's just really common for dancers to take on new roles each time it comes back in the rep. We've had just eight shows this time, but we have about four casts for all the leading roles. So a lot of dancers moving through the roles. Some of them do several, and they alternate as the, uh, as the run progresses. When we first acquired Midsummer, as, as is common, we uh, had our own version of New York City Ballet's scenery and costumes. We acquired the ballet from the George Balanchine Trust, which was set up after Balanchine died in 1983, to sort of facilitate and administer performances of his ballets to be sure they were taught uh, by, by dancers who worked with him and who knew the ballets so that it could help maintain their integrity. And so we, we acquired this work and the scenery and the costumes, but about 12 years in, in 1997, Ken Stoll and Francie Russell, who were our directors at that time and for many years, asked the Balanchine Trust, can we redesign this ballet? Meaning, same music, same steps, but new scenery and new costumes. This is done a lot now, but it was a little bit new, 25 some odd years ago, and the Trust said, yes, you can, you can redesign this. And so they had in mind for the costumes, Martin Pacladinas. He went by Marty. And Marty was a, uh, a prolific costume designer, designed not only for ballet, but opera and a lot of, lot of theater genres. Uh, but Marty, who was delighted to do it, said, but can I design the sets as well, which was new for him. It's often a plus to have the same designer designing scenery and costumes because of the continuity you can have between the two. It's sort of built in to the idea of having one person design. So Kent and Francia agreed, and together the three of them decided that the inspiration for the production would be the Northwest, where we live. Midsummer takes place outside, so the scenery is going to be filled with the trees and plants and flowers that we see here in the Northwest. And because the fairy kingdom is supposed to be made up of very tiny magical creatures, the trees and flowers are often very huge on stage. So we're, I think we're really treated to sort of a mirror of our, of our uh, environment here in this production. So it's very much our production and very much a, a sort of Pacific Northwest uh, tribute, if you will. So this premiered in 1997. Uh, the marketing departments included Ken Francis' director's notes in the program from that May of 1997, and you can read about those on page 20. They write about their inspiration for the redesign and their work with Marty and other things. In 97, we had a, a wonderful company manager working for us named John Pendleton, who had a lot of uh, experience touring and a lot of connections at wonderful theaters and festivals, and John helped us secure a spot on the Edinburgh International Arts Festival, which is one of the world's biggest arts festivals, where we took our new midsummer in August of 1998. We had a great time. It was the first tour I did with the company. And, uh, and the nice thing about these big festivals is that presenters from other festivals attend because they want to see what's sort of on the festival circuit. So we got a number of invitations from this first engagement. The next February, we were at Sadler's Wells Theatre in London, where we performed Midsummer, and the BBC filmed the production. High Definition was brand new then, and we filmed it in HD, and I remember going underneath the stage where all the monitors were set up and just being really wowed by the color. Uh, we're so used to it now, but if you look at things that were filmed before HD, you know, there's, there's a big difference there. 
So that was wonderful. And uh, production's probably streaming somewhere, but you can buy an old-fashioned DVD in the <laughs> shop here. And I'm thinking, buy it on Amazon or wherever. So we sort of immortalized the production in that film. A uh, couple years later, we were in Istanbul. Uh, we've been to Hong Kong. Uh, we performed at the Hollywood Bowl on a program with Julie Andrews. She was not dancing in Midsummer, but uh, she was part of the program. And uh, so it's just some really wonderful experiences. And I think one of the, one of the most special aspects of touring Midsummer is that uh, each performance requires 25 uh, young students in it. 24 are the bugs, as we call them, the bugs that make up Oberon and Titania's kingdom. And Titania's page, who is really the smallest child from our school that we can get, who is poised enough to stand on stage, and they're out there as Titania's page. Now, when we went to London and we were going to be filmed, we brought our own students from the school. Ken Francia thought if PNB is going to be filmed, PNB school is going to be filmed too. So we took the kids. I was in charge of the kids for that trip. It was great. It's great. I still know some of them uh, back then. And, most of their families came. It was just this big celebration. But when we've gone to other places, we have partnered with schools in the area and uh, collaborated with them for the children in midsummer. And so we would send uh, Otto Newbert, who's sitting up here, who is uh, our senior uh, rehearsal director. Otto has taught the kids in midsummer and Nutcracker and, and many other ballets for all the time he's been here at PMB. We'd send Otto a couple months early couple months early? Two weeks. Oh, two weeks. Oh, wow. Okay, fast track. Uh, two weeks early to work with the children, teach them the steps, get them prepared, and then when the company would arrive, wherever it was, Istanbul, Hong Kong, Edinburgh, we would integrate the students into the production. And it was just a terrific and really unlikely sort of uh, partnership. And we would be able to meet these kids and sometimes some of their families. And it was just a really wonderful way to uh, be a little bit more involved in the places that we were, that we were traveling. So that, that's been a really exciting part of Midsummer. But of course, also performing the work at home comes back about every four years. And COVID notwithstanding, it's been only four years since we performed it last. I think we had it on stage in 2019, and here we are in 2023 next time around. We've had a lot of debuts this time as we always do in Midsummer, because as I said, we, it's, a, it's a ballet that you can really uh, work, your, work through during your career. Um, at our post-show Q&A today, we have that right after the show back down here and everyone's welcome. Uh, Peter Bowl, our director, will be here and the guest will be Audrey Malik. Uh, Audrey is making, I'm, I'm quite sure it was her debut in Helena during this run, and she'll be on stage today. Audrey's new to the company, terrific dancer, and I think uh, one that you'll, you'll want to get to know. So please know that you're welcome to come back down here. It's a great way to let the garage clear out of cars, and it's a straight shot to down Mercer if that's where you're going. That's right after the performance ends. Our runtime's about two, two hours 10, two hours 15. Remember, it's the long first act, intermission, shorter second act, sort of the perfect, perfect setup. So uh, that's a Midsummer Night's Dream, really uh, important ballet here at PNB. But um, we've got plenty of time, and if there are things that you'd like to ask, I'll, I'll, I'll try and respond, yes. Would you tell us a little more about the role of Puck? 
Yes, the role of Puck. So Puck is, uh, Puck in a way is, is kind of the narrator of, of, of the ballet for us. Um, he uh, is Oberon's sidekick. He is mischievous, uh, energetic, enthusiastic, always ready for a challenge. Uh, he's the one that uh, Oberon sends to get the magic flower. He's the one that he sends out to, to play the tricks on, uh, on Titania and on Bottom the Weaver. Um, it's what we would call, a, I think, a demi-character role. It's a dancing role, but also very much an acting role, too. So in that regard, it's a real challenge for the dancer. I think, I think the pucks that perform really enjoy the role. A lot of communicating with the audience and letting the audience sort of know what's going on through, through pantomime gestures and just sort of natural gestures that we all understand, even if it's just like shush or something like that. So we get a lot of communication from Puck, whereas everyone else we're kind of observing from the outside. So I think Puck's the link between the action on stage and those of us who are watching it in the audience. Yeah. Yes. Um, just slight, slight tangent question, but you mentioned um, that Audrey Mack is going to be um, speaking after the performance. I'm just wondering, I mean, having been there, I, I second your comment about getting out of the parking garage. It's, it's great for that. Um, but yeah, I just wondered, having been to many of these Q&As, how they get selected, the, you know, the performances who actually come into that. Oh, yeah, good question. So how are the, how are the dancers who, who are part of the Q&A get selected? Uh, Peter Bull makes the selections, and I think... Um, he goes at it a, a couple different ways. Um, sometimes it's a dancer who will be dancing a, a lead role, like a, an Odette Odeal in Swan Lake, which is kind of an obvious choice because it's, a, it's an interesting and a taxing uh, and important role, and it's great to talk about uh, to the dancers. Uh, Peter, I know each season tries to um, include dancers who are new to the company because they're a way for the audience to hear directly from them. Uh, they may be uh, new at a higher rank, but also apprentices are, are all also worked in. And it's also an opportunity for them to have gained some public speaking uh, experience as well and answer questions. Um, sometimes it will be a dancer who's making a debut in a role. Or if it's a mixed bill of several works, if a dancer happens to be in all of them, uh, that's also really practical because they can, they can answer uh, questions or discuss any of the works that were on the program. So I think a few different, a few different, different ways here. Uh, with Midsummer, it's been more um, dancers who are new to roles, I think. Um, so that was the case last night too. We had two dancers and they were both uh, new to the roles they were dancing this time around. And uh, the same with Audrey today. Thanks. Anybody else with a question? It's got to be something you want to know. No? Yes? Okay, please. Yeah, so uh, the, the Balanchine Trust, uh, you had to present the, uh, the uh, new production that you were going to uh, put together. Mm -hmm. uh, I take it they were okay with it? Do you know of any instance where a company did something and they said, oh, maybe that's not to our liking? Mm, the question is about working with the Balanchine Trust on a redesign. Um, th they're involved at different stages of approval as the, as the production goes on. So 
Um, we also have a redesign of George Balanchine's Nutcracker. And there are certain uh, costume lengths that they would like you to keep, say, for the Waltz of the Flowers in the Nutcracker, because they, they feel the, the costumes that uh, Mr. Balanchine had uh, complement the choreography he created for those. So if, the say, the flowers have skirts that come down to about the shin, um, I think the trust would want to continue with that, that sort of silhouette rather than say something really short or, or quite a bit different. So there's some parameters like that, and usually then the concept is presented to them. For example, uh, Miami City Ballet has redesigned Midsummer recently, and it's set sort of in an underwater kingdom, which, and I think instead of bottom being turned into a donkey, um, wait for it, a manatee. Okay, but they made a good case. And uh, they had a cohesive design, which I'm sure the trust felt honored and, uh, you know, allowed the choreography to be performed as it was, it was, as it was created. So I think, I think on the whole, they're very uh, positive experiences working through these things with, with the trust. Who's really interested in, you know, maintaining the integrity of, of the dancing and of uh, broadly of the sort of intentions of the ballets. And they also... Uh, provide uh, the, the stagers to teach all the steps, things like that. Yes? Uh, short of a redesign, how much room for interpretation is there, given that the Balanchine Trust owns this thing, or it's theirs? How much can the dancers and Peter and all of you do your own thing with the roles, the parts, the moves, that's a great question. You know, how much, how much leeway is there in the interpretation of the role? And again, it's just sort of about parameters. There, there are steps that need to be performed. Very occasionally, there might be a choice of one step over another. Very occasionally. Um, but usually, it's the steps at a certain time with the music at a certain speed. Um, and then the action of the uh, ballet as well. Certain things need to happen at certain times. And yet, within that, you know, every dancer is a little bit different. Somehow the affect is different. And, and dancers, too, can have different sort of movement qualities. It's, I know I'm sort of talking intangibles. But so there, overall, there's, everyone's doing the same thing to a certain extent. But um, there wouldn't be leeway to just... Uh, suddenly start dancing different steps or changing, changing the choreography or things like that. Um, that being said, as, as ballets by George Balanchine stayed in the repertory when he was alive, he would revise and make changes. So, for example, uh, a ballet that Francia Russell might stage, which she learned in the 1960s when she was a ballet mistress at New York City Ballet, might be different from the staging someone who uh, learned it in, 19, in the late 1970s when Balanchine may have made some changes. And um, the Balanchine Trust takes that into account. Generally, they ask that the ballet be staged uh, as it was uh, at the latest point when Balanchine worked on it. But there are some dispensations for, for um, other versions, if you will. I hope that makes some sense. Balanchine did revise quite a bit, often based on uh, a new dancer that was in a role. It was something also that, that I've learned was done very commonly in the 19th century, too. 
sort of dancers were accommodated, their strengths were played to, and so he might make some changes based on, on what was best uh, for the dancer. Yes? I don't know if this fits the format, but can you talk a little bit about you? I mean, were you a dancer? Yes. Oh, can I talk about me? Yes, I will briefly talk about me. Uh, I was not a dancer, I was trained in music. Um, but I've worked at PMB since 1995, started playing uh, piano in the school, but then I began to work for Kent Stoll and Francis Russell in 1996 as their administrative assistant in the artistic office. And I've worked for the company since then in a couple uh, different roles. I was Peter Bowles' assistant in the same capacity uh, between about 2006 and 2020. And now I just work part-time for the company because I've had some other uh, projects. I do a lot of work in dance history. Um, I, I work with dance notation from the late 19th century, and I've done some work uh, helping to revive some dances uh, along those lines. But uh, PMB has me, given me a lot of opportunities and a sort of foot into the world of ballet, which is something I was very interested in. So I'm, I'm very grateful for all the opportunities here. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> that's very kind of you. I, I'm very fortunate that there, there are a lot of wonderful things to discuss. And I love uh, the interaction with, with, with you all and all of us who are going to see these pieces because we're the ones seeing them and, and, and responding to them and perceiving them and we have ideas and thoughts about them. We may like one thing better than another. We may change our minds after a certain performance and I love all of that. Sort of, that's what makes everything sort of live. Yes, Otto? That's why we call you Super Daughter. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I've been tolerated for many years, so thank you. Yes, please. dancers now are expected to follow Balanchine's 1987, was it, uh, steps. What about how then do we build on dancers' strengths now? Is that through, that first part of my question, is that through new, only through new ballets? Because we have to adhere to those steps? Second part of my question is older ballets from the 20th century uh, that had different versions, and I'm assuming different steps. How do we reconcile that if you, for example, Swan Lake, which I'm sure had many, many different iterations, how do we settle on which steps? This is a great question. I need to be succinct, but um, I'll try to address everything. The first part of the question was about um, if we're performing, say, works by Balanchine that were choreographed some decades ago and are still uh, required to adhere to how those are done, where does sort of development go? Um, is, does that come just in new works? And then another part of the question is, what do we do with ballets like Swan Lake, uh, older works that are, have sort of many layers of revisions over the years and many, many sort of... Uh, roots going out in many different directions depending what tradition is, is dealing with them. Uh, so with Balanchine, 
uh, a lot of copyright law was changed by Congress in the 70s, I think uh, due in great part to the fact that Balanchine was, was not young anymore and had many, many ballets that they decided they would essentially declare assets by allowing him to have a copyright in those ballets. So since that time, choreographers have been able to exert more control over their sort of legacy, if you will. The nice thing about Balanchine is he worked primarily in a classical idiom that has kind of transcended time. Um, the way we may perform a particular step today is likely different to a certain extent to the way that same step was performed a hundred years, but, but classical ballet has had a sort of transcendent quality which allows that sort of slow change over time that 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 works with Balanchine's ballets too, I think. I mean, there are certain ways of doing certain steps, but if it's a, a glissade or a jeté, you know, we do them the way we would perform them today. There's a little bit of a timeless quality, and I'm not, not trying to sort of uh, make Balanchine sound godlike, but working in the classical idiom sort of affords that transcendence. With something like Swan Lake, the movement quality back from, say, 1895, when the sort of definitive version would hit the stage, it is so different from, from now. And ballet aesthetics have changed so much over time. There was a certain period, a long period in the 20th century, where pantomime was just uh, sort of not appreciated and thought it wasn't, it was too archaic. And, and so a lot of that was taken out of ballets and replaced with dancing, set to music that wasn't written for dancing, but you can see how that sort of sends you in one direction. There's been more, um, I think, attempts recently to try and recover some of that choreography and pantomime from that time. Then the question arises, well, should we try and look like people looked back then, which is kind of impossible, or do we do it the way we move today? Um, dancers moved very fast, so uh, in the past, so the question is, do we, do we still move at that speed and sort of sacrifice what we call cleanliness of technique, or do we do the sort of very clean technique that's expected today, but maybe do a little slower so we can get all the steps in? So these, these are questions that are alive and questions that are sort of continually being asked as things move along. Well, I'd, I'd say there's a real caveat there. Are dancers more athletic now than they were? I think dancers in the past were faster. They were less flexible and they had very fast twitch responses, like a very tight rubber band, and so they could move very quickly, which is much of the aesthetic of, of past years, is speed. Today, uh, training really elongates and stretches out dancers' muscles. They also were strong, uh, but, uh, moving really fast can be challenging if, you've, if you're very, very stretched out. Uh, but moving in a more, say, slower controlled way is something that's become part of the aesthetic that wasn't in past years. So anyway, ongoing questions for sure. And always changing because we're dealing with bodies and, and aesthetics coupled together. I have kept you plenty of time now. We're about half an hour from curtain. Uh, please remember, you're welcome to come down to the post Q&A, but above all, thank you for being here and for supporting PMB, and enjoy the performance. Thank you.